death used to be so simple. When you were dead, you were dead. You were buried or cremated, and that was really it. You would exist only in the memories of those who knew you until they themselves passed on. Perhaps you built something while you were alive, painted something, wrote something, and if you're lucky, these things might be preserved. But the memory of you and who you were would quickly fade away. But then one day, someone creates an incredible device that can freeze time. It's called a camera. All you have to do is place yourself in front of a lens, and with a quick flash, an image of you is captured for the ages. A lasting image, clear record of you in a single lasting moment of time. You will grow older, you might get smaller, fatter, bolder, but within this image, you will forever stay the same. The camera soon evolved. The ability to record sound and motion soon followed. We were no longer frozen in time. We could move, talk, dance, sing. We could exist on repeat, going over the same familiar lines and motions over and over and over. Death was no longer an obstacle. We could be singing in the rain, putting on the ritz and parting like it's 1999, right until the end of time. Now we can even come back from the dead. Passing away is not the impediment to your career that it used to be. You can go back on tour and belt out the old hits. You can be resurrected to make a cameo appearance in the role that made you famous. How long before our recreations can go off script, speak new lines, sing new hits, talk to us as if they had never passed away at all? There are more pictures of us now than ever before. More recordings of us now than ever before. There's really no need for a Ouija board. A conversation with the dead is just a click away. Now we're all ghosts in the machine, waiting to come back to life once again. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we dig into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. You'd think that advances in technology would make us more scientific, more secure in our rational materialist understanding of the universe. And yet somehow the reverse can also be true. New discoveries, new inventions, they open up new possibilities, And they have the consistent habit of making us reflect on ourselves, our mortality, and the nature of our existence. There was once a time when the only way to send a message from one place to another was to write it down, pay a penny for a stamp, and entrust it to a postman. They'd take the message away on their horse, and you'd perhaps get a reply within days, but more likely in weeks or months. For generations, little changed. But then one day someone creates an incredible device that will deliver a message in seconds. Imagine what it must have been like to pick up a telephone for the first time, to speak into a pipe and hear a voice talk back to you, travelling down wires from many miles away. It must have seemed like magic. It was an invention that changed the world. Suddenly the barriers of distance and time were being broken. Voices could now cross counties, and soon they'd be crossing countries, continents and oceans. Once we can achieve what used to be impossible, greater, more incredible things start to seem possible. If the barriers of distance can be shattered, what other limits of communication might be broken? If a voice can leave the body and travel down a wire, can we communicate with that that no longer has a body? Can we speak to those on a different plane of existence, 
and are their voices there, hidden within the static? People did really think like this when the telephone was invented, and it's easy to snigger about it now, but our relationship with technology is a lot more primitive than we like to think. I mean, how do you behave when your 21st century phone stops working? Is your immediate action to engage with the root cause of the problem, in the hardware or in the code? Or is it to hit it, shout at it, plead with it to start working again? The truth is that most of us don't understand how these things really work. When we're at a loss to explain why they're not doing as they're told, we're reminded that we have less control than we think we do. That's when the old primitive brain starts to creep back in, and we project our own human motivations and magical thinking onto the inanimate. Today's story is about technology behaving strangely, and a message caught in time, a cry for help replaying over and over, something that can't break free. As you listen to this extraordinary tale, I want you to think closely about the details. This tale includes events that can't be verified, but plenty of details that can be. Consider all the things that could be checked, like the dates of incidents as recorded in the news or in official documents. Think about locations and addresses, and the distances between one place and the next. Think about tenancy agreements, who lived where and when. If all these things check out, and I can assure you that they do, does it make this story seem more likely? Does it make the subject at the centre of it all seem more honest? Or are they just the victim of a more elaborate delusion? Just another person creating ghosts within the chaos and the static? There is, of course, only one way to make your mind up. I present for your curiosity, New Ghost Stories Case Number 47. Wrong Number. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. I moved because she left me. Modest two-bedroom place in Croydon, only a mile and a half from my new surgery. I wasn't sad to leave Shoreditch. It was no surprise to find that my friends were really her friends. Can't say as I like many of them anyway. And exceptional people trying so desperately to seem exceptional. I knew it wouldn't last. She a guitarist. What do you do, mate? I'm a vet. Oh, right, and then move on. If you're not part of their world, you're no one. She was more beautiful and talented than I had any right to be with. Should have stuck with the slightly chubby girls, the smiling round-faced lasses, the ones who spend most of their life behind counters at front desks or bars, who crave the sex in the city life while stuffing their faces with pizza and chocolate. My girlfriend, my ex, ended up fucking a singer from another band, a pretentious prick with no ideas of his own, but oh my, what a really interesting haircut he had. Whatever. If someone surrounds themselves with twats, you can only expect them to adapt. So I moved into the upstairs of a converted house and paid £675, bit of a bargain, to Mr and Mrs Soda each month. I shifted all my stuff in and discovered how little I owned, so I went out and bought a new TV, stereo, Blu-ray and some other stuff. I couldn't afford it, but I didn't really care. My salary as a new vet wasn't great, but it would do. At least I didn't have to commute anymore. There wasn't much decent to look at out there, but I did my best to leer at the occasional young mum with a wounded puppy or college student with a sick bunny rabbit. I was not very good at it, at least not without a couple of pints down me. I got the place hooked up with a phone line in the net pretty quick, about a week after I moved in, I think. 
It happened the very first time after that, 8.30, Thursday night. I was on my sofa, pizza on my lap, can in my hand, when the phone rang. I put everything down and got up to answer it. When I picked up, I couldn't hear much except static. Hello, I repeated. Out of all the fuzz and buzzing came a voice. Hello, it said. Mum? What? I shouted. I could barely hear. It was a girl's voice, youngish, I guessed. Mum, I need you to pick me up. It sounded like she was holding the phone a few feet from her face. What I could tell was that she was upset. She had the cracked, dry tone of someone who'd been crying. I think you've got the wrong number, I said. Felt a bit cruel, but what could I do for her? I can't do it any more, Mum, she went on. Hello, I said loudly. Can you hear me? You were right. He's a lost cause. She broke into tears. You've got the wrong number, love, I shouted. I only wanted to help him. She was definitely crying. Come get me, please. I'm on the corner of Saxon. Then the line went dead. It shook me a little bit, but she obviously couldn't hear me, so there wasn't exactly anything I could do about it. I went on with my happy life as usual, working during the day, drinking alone at night. I didn't give the call any more thought, but then a few nights later, at around half past eight, the phone went again. I had no clue it would be the same call again, so I just picked it up expecting it to be a survey call, or my mum, the only other person I'd given the number to. Hello, said the same girl's voice, from way far off, like before, half covered by static. My first thought was that somehow she had the wrong number programmed into her phone, or that maybe my number was really close to her mum's number. But that wasn't what was so strange about it. What was so strange was that it was exactly the same message. I can't do it any more, mum. I was becoming a bit freaked out. I said again, I think you've got the wrong number. There was a pause, a moment of silence. You were right, he's a lost cause. I only wanted to help him. She wasn't ignoring me, she was having a conversation with someone else. It was like a recording, but a conversation I could only hear one side of. I put the phone down. I was a bit unnerved, maybe a bit unsettled. But I just thought of it as one of those strange things, some kind of bug in the phone network. It was just weird. So I just went on with things as normal. Got up, went to work, had some lunch, went back again and then either home or down the pub for a drink or two, or more if I felt like it, which at the time I usually did. I put some distance between myself and my friends, the ones who cared at least, not that I appreciated it at the time. I was looking back at my whole life with disappointment, and wasn't interested in seeing anyone or really doing anything. Of course, most of my existing friends lived in or around London, so the world has to revolve around them. Always must go into London, no chance of them straying from their precious city life, so I thought, fuck them, and couldn't be asked going to see them when they couldn't be asked to come to see me. And then a few nights later, the phone rang again. I had just got home from doing some shopping, so it wasn't until I was just about to pick up did I realise that it was 8.30 again, and there was the sound of the crackling and the static and the far-off voice again calling for her mother. I can't do it any more, Mum. I listened quietly, not saying a word, feeling very unsettled now. I listened to her talk for a moment until I said, Is this some kind of joke? After a brief silence, she said again, You were right, he's a lost cause. Fuck off. I slammed the phone down and went to put my shopping away. She'd definitely taken longer to say the next line after I swore at her. I was sure of it. It happened again the next night. I was in the bath that time, so I didn't answer it. But it happened at around 8.30. I heard the time on the radio. 
When I was out and still dripping wet, I went to the phone and tried to get the number back from 1471. The automated voice said that the last call was on the 18th of April. I sat down and thought about it. That date was almost two weeks ago and it was my mum. This was at least the fourth time the phone had rung in that time. I came home during my lunch hour and rang up the phone company to ask them what the hell was going on. Well, what I asked was if there was something wrong on the line because I kept getting strange missed calls. I didn't go into detail because when I tried to explain, I kept feeling like I was a nutcase and didn't want to seem like one. They said they'd have a look at it. I don't know whether they ever did or not, but it didn't change anything. I was caught off guard the next time. I was just finishing a mundane chat with my dad and put the phone down for just a moment when it rang again. I picked it up thinking it would be him, having forgotten to tell me something, but instead I got, Hello, Mum? Now was when I started to get frightened. I felt shivers race up my spine. The voice was so much clearer this time. It was the same words, but they were different. Mum, I need you to pick me up. They were more anguished, almost harsh, angry. As if, now stay with me, because I ignored the last call, I had somehow upset her, even though each word, each breath was just as it was before. I slammed the phone down and tore out the phone line. Couldn't get the words out of my head after that. The way she'd said them, who was she? Why was she calling me? What the hell was going on? I left the phone unplugged, but the call left me tense all evening. I was off work the next day, and when I was coming home, I got caught out in the corridor by Mr. and Mrs. Soda. You know the type, very chatty, very friendly, very nice, but way too nice. You smile and you chat, and you get away as soon as possible, because they'll talk at you for ages if you don't, and not about anything remotely interesting. But I got sucked in, in part because I needed to sign something to do with the deposit scheme. They made me a cup of coffee, gave me a slice of cake, and I ended up trapped out of politeness. I don't know why, but after a while of them jabbering on, I asked, Who lived up there before me? No one, apparently. Of course, as they had said to me when I moved in, I was the first person to occupy the flat since the conversion. But their tone was awkward. They didn't like me asking these questions. I could tell they knew something that I didn't became more obvious the more questions I asked, and I wasn't going to let them get away with it. Who lived here before you? I asked, and when they avoided answering, I told them I had been getting some strange phone calls, implying that they had been for the previous tenant. Mr. and Mrs. Soda looked at each other, wondering what to say to me. They assured me quickly that they had not lied to me or misled me. There had been no previous tenant in my flat, but awkwardly, they conceded that someone had lived there in the house previously who had actually been killed. They were quick to point out that the accident had not happened in the house. A woman had lived there before. Her husband had left her and she was forced to bring up three children alone. The eldest left school at sixteen to help her mother look after the youngest two. She was described in near-angelic terms, a self-sacrificing girl who got her family through the toughest of times and put herself second. Years later, when her brother and sisters were older, she was able to go back to school. She went to the local art college where she became involved with a troubled young artist. He was supposed to be really brilliant. They told the story like it was from the pages of a woman's weekly. But he was unbalanced, a mental case, and their relationship was always up and down. He was supposed to have hit her at one point. Then he got on the drugs, and although she had kept going back to him, that was really the final straw. She left him for good one night. Then she was in an accident, a hit and run. Her mother was supposed to pick her up and found her lying face down in the road. You could have knocked me over with a feather at that moment. 
Was that what I was hearing? The last words of a doomed girl? An innocent who put herself at the service of others all her life, struck coldly down in the rain, dead like she was nothing to no one? But there was more to come. In the aftermath, the boyfriend, the artist, whose name they could not remember, was accused of the crime. There was a big brouhaha locally. She was popular with those who knew her, and commended for her social work, but the police could not prove he was at the scene, or that he had access to a vehicle. He was committed soon after, and they never found the car, or another culprit. The girl's family lived in the house a little longer, but apparently they started to get phone calls. Strange phone calls. They always thought it was him, but nothing was ever proven. He lived in the area for a while after his release from hospital, but was forced to leave. They said this in a serves-him-right sort of way. They wanted to know what phone calls I was getting. Could this maniac be back in the area? Pretty startled, I said it was nothing, just silence at the end of the line. They looked at me bleakly. When they first moved in, they had been phoned a couple of times by someone. Someone who had never spoken, but they could hear them on the other end of the phone, breathing. I was upset, to say the least, and they could see it, despite my attempts to hide it. They were probably more afraid that I would use this as some kind of excuse to get out of my contract and move out. I went back upstairs and tried to make myself some lunch, but I was too shaken, too upset. I logged on to the web and started searching. I didn't trust second-hand tales told by old couples with nothing better to do with their lives than gossip. I searched through the local stories on the BBC site. There were a horrifying number of hit-and-run stories there. But the number in Croydon were few. And the story was there. Hit-and-run on Saxon Road. I wasn't prepared to see her face. She was so young. Although I suppose now that I think about it, she was actually older than me or at least she was when she had the accident. Her name was Catherine. It was only then that I realised that I hadn't even known her name. Catherine Holden. I put it into Google and narrowed my search down to the local press, which had followed the story in a big way. She was indeed painted as an angel. Left school to help her mother, worked as a care assistant at a local old people's home. She was described as being caring and understanding, Good with all the residents, even the difficult ones. And then there was him, all but accused of being the culprit. He was judged to be talented, by who I don't know. But he had had lapses in the past. Catherine was described as being taken in by his mystique and by her need to look after others. But he was troubled and could be violent. Catherine's mother was adamant that he had killed her. But he was not trialled. Artists not charged with hit and run. It was a lack of evidence. Anthony Smith, that was his name, did not have a car. They never found the vehicle responsible. There would have had to have been substantial damage to it. No vehicle Mr. Smith could have had access to had that kind of damage. And no abandoned vehicle was found that exhibited any such damage. There were no witnesses. Smith did not have a satisfactory alibi, but had recently been committed. There were no further stories. I tried to find something more about Anthony Smith, but the name was too common. I started to cry. Properly cry, not just a few tears, full-on weeping. Those words, those helpless words. I only wanted to help him. A beautiful, caring girl run down like she was nothing. I couldn't help but think back to my own girlfriend, who I too had supported and helped only for her to piss off with some junky guitarist. Is that what I'd done? Been seduced by the mystique of it? musician, a sexy hot musician, 
allowed myself to be taken advantage of? Let her walk all over me just because I thought she was out of my league? Had she been at it for years, screwing other guitarists, then coming home to safe old me to support her and to clap along to her rubbish lyrics and stolen chords? Fucking artists. Pretentious, tortured fuckers. They didn't suffer, just the people all around them. Poor Catherine, she deserved better. We both deserved better. It was then that I went back to the phone. I picked up the cord, plugged it back into the slot, and then waited. This time I would know her name, could listen to her cry, somehow try to touch the troubled soul that was reaching out to me. I watched the clock as darkness fell and it turned round to 8.30. But there was no call. I even picked up the phone to check the line was working. There was nothing. I called the phone with my mobile. It rang on cue. But it didn't happen every night. I didn't always get the call. So I waited the next night, made sure I was at home. And the night afterward. But nothing. She didn't call. I felt like I'd abandoned her. But I was the last person she had tried to reach and I'd rejected her. She was lost, wherever it was that she was. I'd left her adrift. Part of me knew that even if she had called back, I could do nothing, that she never heard my voice anyway. But some part of me wanted to do something, anything, no matter how small, even if, in the tiniest of ways, just being there to listen to her cry for help somehow meant I could be there for her. And I wanted to do it. But she stopped calling. A week went by, not a call came. I sank further into depression. I would come home from work and sink into the sofa. And I do mean sink. I would bury myself in the cushions, sometimes for hours, with or without the TV on. I ate only take-out food, anything that required the least amount of preparation. I put on weight. I looked pale. My work suffered. My colleagues saw me show up with bags under my eyes, my clothes scruffy, smelling of cigarettes and alcohol. I was eventually called in by the surgery manager, who gave me a strict telling off. I didn't take it well. I was still drunk from lunch. He said I was on my final warning. I hit a new low. That night I went to the pub and hooked up with the pub slag. You know the type, dresses too provocatively even for an 18-year-old, but is somewhere in her mid-thirties, and that's if you're being generous. Bad permed hair, cleavage wrinkles. Always stands as if she's holding a cigarette. I was so pissed I staggered back to her place, a dirty dump down a back alley with fag burns on the furniture and mould in the coffee cups. I remember waking up next to her and wanting to vomit. That sounds excessively cruel, I know, but bear in mind that I also drank enough to floor a heavy Irish wrestler. I tried to tidy myself up for work that morning, but everyone, including myself, knew I was in no fit state to be there. I told the receptionist that I was going home ill at lunch. She didn't believe there was anything really wrong with me beyond the obvious. I went home and after a short period with my head amongst the sofa cushion, I started to drink again. It was the only thing I wanted to do. I passed out some time late afternoon. I don't know when. All I know is that I awoke when it was dark. The phone was ringing. It was half past eight. It was a few moments before I realised what was happening. The room was spinning. I stumbled to my feet. Barely staying upright, I went for the phone. I picked it up and dropped it. I fell to my knees with a thump and scooped it up. 
It was her. The sweet but frightened voice spoke out to me. You were right. He's a lost cause. I only wanted to help him. Catherine, I'm so sorry, I said with my eyes filling with tears. I'm so, so sorry. You deserved so much better. So much better. After a short silence, I heard, Hello? My jaw dropped open. She'd spoken to me. I started to tremble. Hello? I said back. Who's there? She was speaking to me. She was real. She was alive. I'm coming to get you, I said triumphantly. Stay where you are. I don't know why I said it, why I believed that anything could be done, but right then, I believed that I could save her. I slammed the phone down and leapt across the floor. I took my keys, not my coat, out to my car. It was pouring down with rain. I started the engine without considering that A, I was in no condition to drive, and B, that I had no idea where Saxon Road was. I took off quickly and drove onto the main road before considering this, but a copy of my trusted A to Z helped me find what I was looking for. I found myself diverted down a series of quiet suburban streets, the last place anyone would expect an act of violence and death. Saxon Road was no different. Old Georgian houses now split into flats. The rain was coming down thick. I drove slowly, looking carefully between parked cars and trees and lampposts. Where was she? Was she even there? Then as I approached the road's end, I saw her. I could not see her face, but I knew it was her. It had to be. She was dressed in a thigh-length white coat with a long cream-coloured dress with a ragged floral trim. Her head was shielded by her hood. Her arms were folded, hugging herself for warmth. She stood under a street sign pointing to Cellar Station. I stopped in the middle of the road, got out of the car and ran to her. Catherine! Startled, she turned to me. It really was her. Her skin was pale, her eyes marked by smudged mascara. She was soaked, absolutely dripping with water. It was as if she'd been there forever. Catherine, I said again. I ran right up to her, too close. She took a step back in hesitation. Who are you? she said, frightened. I got your... I didn't know how to explain it. Explain how I'd come to be there. So I said, feeling like some romantic hero from a movie, I've come to take you home. She stared at me, her mouth hung open, unsure what words to say. But then in the distance we heard the sound of tyres screeching across a road. It was pouring down after all, hazardous conditions to be driving in. Yet in that moment to us both, it must have seemed like fate, like time running out. She looked towards the sound and then back to me, and then she said, after a deep breath, Take me home. I nodded. I dashed back to the driver's seat, quickly leaning over to open the passenger side door. With a slow but determined walk, she came to join me inside. She really was soaking. Her clothes squelched against the seat. I did my best not to stare at her as she sat down. It wasn't until I had turned the keys in the ignition and started to drive away that she pulled down her hood and showed her face. I could see it only in the passing glow of the streetlights. She looked tired. There were bags beneath her eyes. She was thin, her cheekbones prominent, unlike they were in the photographs in the paper, taken no doubt in happier times. But she was beautiful. Maybe it was the all-white look, soaked blonde locks, ice-white complexion that made her look like an angel like someone who did not belong in this world with the rest of us. 
A word did not pass between us as I drove. She stared blankly ahead, barely changing in her expression, and I, I could think of nothing to say to her. I kept glancing at her, looking for signs of thought or feeling on her face, but she remained blank. How was I to find the words, find the words to describe how I felt? This bizarre mix of sadness, guilt and joy, that she was here, here now with me and safe. I was so confused, I barely paused to consider that all this was impossible, that what was occurring to me to us was a bona fide miracle. I parked in front of my flat, leapt out of my seat, passed around the front of my car and opened up her door. She stood like a woman in shock, her handbag clutched unnaturally in front of her like a child with a teddy bear. I skipped to the front door and unlocked it swiftly. I held the door open as she squeezed by. She was briefly more animated, looking around at the walls and the fixtures before saying slowly, This is not my home. Breathing heavily, I said, That's because you don't live here any more. She stared at me icily. Maybe that had been too blunt. You've been away a long time. Her icy stare gave away to one of sadness, recognition that what I had said was somehow true. With head bowed, she walked inside and slowly ascended the stairs. I followed closely behind and brushed in front of her when we reached the landing. Let me take your coat, I said. I hung it up on the kitchen door and showed her into the living room. I felt ashamed of its disgusting state, the pile of dirty plates, the loose takeaway packaging, and the scattering of empty cans and bottles. I did a very quick sweep of the room, gathering whatever rubbish I could, and then darted into the kitchen and stuffed the lot in the dustbin, recycling be damned. I came back into the living room and found her sat uncomfortably on the edge of the sofa, her back straight and her hands crossed on her lap. Can I get you something? I said like a hopeless fool. Something warm, maybe? She looked up at me accusingly. Who are you? I had fashioned a footstool out of a plastic carry crate I hadn't put away after I moved in. I put a cushion on it and pulled it across the floor until I was sat in front of her. My name's Johnny. I got your phone call. She opened her mouth to respond, but withdrew the words before speaking them. Do you know how long you've been out there? I said. Well, what are you talking about? Her face twisted, confused. What's going on? She pleaded. I don't know how. I can't explain, I said with words just pouring out, but I've been getting your calls for weeks. And I found out what happened. I know what happened to you. And when you spoke to me, when you finally answered me, I had to come. And I knew just where to find you. I had to save you. I don't know what you're talking about, she said with panic, shuffling back into the sofa cushions in discomfort. Where's mum? I want to speak to my mum. I'm here to help you. You can't help me, she sobbed. She started to cry. If there was one thing I had plenty of, it was takeaway napkins. Within seconds I had handed her a tissue. Everything's going to be okay. It's not okay. It's never going to be okay. I loved him. I really loved him, but he's destroying himself. And I can't watch him do that. I just can't. I took the chance and lifted myself from the box stool and onto the sofa next to her. Do you know what it's like to love someone so much it hurts? That it tears you up to watch them kill themselves so much, but you can't just leave them? I reached out to hug her, but her head was sobbing into my shoulder first, streams of tears running down her face, her whole body trembling with grief. I held her, I held her tight. She wept, I cried too, unavoidably thinking now of my own former lover, she who had taken my love selfishly and had not returned my affection. She who had betrayed me, betrayed my trust. You can't just take on other people's problems, I spluttered. 
you have to have something for yourself. You've got to keep some of yourself for you, or else you've got nothing. If you give too much, you just come out empty. You're a person too. You can't live your life like a like a dry sponge. You've got to soak up some love for yourself. There was a moment of silence. She lifted her head to look at me. Our eyes locked onto each other both in recognition of what might quite possibly constitute the worst metaphor ever uttered outside of a sixth-form poetry class. It broke the tension. We both paused to laugh. You know what I mean, I said sheepishly. She looked into my eyes. Her eyes suddenly seemed large, magnetic. I could feel her looking into me, right into me. The movement of her eyes was felt in the back of my skull. I don't know who made the first move, but our lips were suddenly locked her arms around my neck, her hands running through the hair on the back of my head. It was all so spontaneous, smooth and uninhibited, like an edited motion picture love scene. I pulled off her soggy blouse and she lifted off my stained t-shirt. We fell back on the sofa. She gently caressed my back as I rolled her over slightly to unhook her bra. We made love for a long time, I think. It all seemed so slow, I can't remember it without blurred edges. A kind of surreal, out-of-focus montage. It doesn't seem real now. I don't remember the feeling of sweat on my back or the sound of her moans. I don't think I even thought for a moment about contraception, and I was normally so courteous about that. And then, at the moment of climax, it wasn't like a fade to black, it was like a fade to white. Some great, trippy, hippie freakout. I must have fallen asleep then. You never remember falling asleep, but yet that's the bit I remember most. Fade out and then sleep, sleep like I have never had before or since, uninterrupted, undisturbed. I did not dream, and I remember not dreaming. There was nothing more to say, nothing more to think. I was whole, I suppose, and for the briefest of moments, absolutely content. I awoke some time the next afternoon. I lay in my pants on my living room floor, smelling badly of sweat and with more than the slightest hint of a headache. My body ached, I pulled myself up. I was alone. The cushions from the sofa were on the floor. I stood up slowly and looked around. I checked the bathroom, the toilet, the bedroom and the car. She was gone. In fact, there was no real sign she'd ever been there at all. I surveyed my home carefully. Her coat was not on the kitchen door, there were no wet drips on the carpet, no muddy footprints, even the car seat she had soaked into was dry, and the living room was as much of a tip as it had ever been. But I knew I had not dreamt it. I had had no dreams, she had been there. I felt her, smelt her, touched her. And I was so sorry that she was gone. I waited dutifully until 8.30 for her call. I did not eat, I did not drink, I did not wash. I cleaned the place out of boredom. I took the bin out, did my recycling, crushed the pizza boxes and cans. But her call never came. I put on clothes and did my washing up. Even hoovered the place at twenty minutes to midnight. But she didn't call, and she never called again. I was sad at first that she was gone, but I knew that, and I apologise if this sounds corny, but that she was now in a better place. I can't say that I had expected her to call again. Having saved her in my own way, I thought it only sensible that I should now save myself. On the following Monday, I met with my boss and admitted to him that I had become an alcoholic, that this had affected my performance and that I was very sorry. 
He could fire me if he so wished, but I would be grateful if he would give me one more chance. He seemed impressed by my honesty, but I can't honestly say whether he'll really allow me to continue beyond the end of my probation. I started to visit Alcoholics Anonymous for a while, just to show my willingness to change, although I didn't really think that I was a real addict, just acting out. I went on a diet, just briefly. A reduction in takeaways made a big impact, and I started to exercise on a semi-regular basis. I'd be lying if I said that my bizarre encounter completely changed everything, but it made me start to care about myself again, and to care about what happened to me. I had not completely had my fill of unexpected phone calls, though. A week or two after my strange encounter, I had a call from her, my ex. I was surprised to hear her voice. We had had no communication since I had left our home. She had heard some concerning things about me from my friends. I'd forgotten that she cared. We talked for a little while, caught up as it were. I was amiable, if not a little difficult. But in truth, it was actually good to hear from her. I did miss her in spite of not wanting to ever see or hear from her again. She invited me out for a drink sometime, said she'd missed me. I declined as politely as possible. I didn't really want to see her. Besides, I had only a day or so before heard rumour that her and him were no longer an item, and I did not want to be her crutch. I was better than that. Of course, she may have simply only wanted to be friendly. I didn't wish to find out either way. Better to just let some things go completely. There was also one more call of note, an uncomfortable epilogue for this story. It was late in the evening when the phone rang. I picked it up without fear, knowing that it could never be her. But someone was breathing heavily on the other end of the line. It was out of breath, nervous breathing. It was unsettling and creepy. It carried on for just a few seconds when, just as I was about to say something myself, there was a sudden unexpected whisper. It said, thank you. And then the line went dead. You could jump to a conclusion and assume this was some ghostly final acknowledgement of gratitude from beyond the grave. But the time was 8.32pm, and it was a man's voice. I suppose whether you're in the right or you're the wronged, we all have our chance to suffer. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. Today's story features in the book 11 New Ghost Stories, available from Amazon, iTunes and other major book retailers. This podcast is entirely self-funded and produced, you can probably tell, which means any support you can offer counts enormously. If you enjoyed today's story, please give it a review on whichever platform you listen to it on or downloaded it from. And please subscribe to hear upcoming releases. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at newghoststories.com and you can find my latest writing on Substack at davepaulnixon.substack.com You can also sign up for updates on Twitter at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, a childish game turns terrifying, and it all starts with a simple knock at the door. Hold up. 